Hello, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Engineering. I'm Jim Anderton, Multimedia Content Director here at Engineering.com. This week, Rocket Lab crashes, a flying car takes off, and is wind power ready to fly? So these days, the heavy hitters in orbital launch, like United Launch Alliance, Ariane Space, and SpaceX, well, they've been joined by a new type of competitor, the SmallSat launcher. Now, the idea is that small boosters carrying lightweight payloads can deliver satellites to low Earth orbit at low cost with a fast reaction time. Now, the market opportunity is obvious. The customer chooses when the payload launches, and there's no need to piggyback on large heavyweight communications satellites or military payloads. Rocket Lab is one of the leading small-sat companies in the new space industry, having delivered 12 payloads into orbit so far. But like all space launch companies, it doesn't always go perfectly. Matt Greenwood has a story this week about a Rocket Lab electron booster failure on July 4th that was intended to deliver seven satellites into orbit. The mission, titled Pixar It Didn't Happen, was launched from the company's New Zealand facility on the power of a first stage equipped with nine Rocket Lab-built Rutherford liquid propellant engines. They deliver a total of 41,000 pounds of thrust. To give you a sense of scale in the small sat business, I mean, that's less than half the rating of a single Boeing 777 turbofan engine. But they perform well through the critical part of every space launch. Now, the critical part, that's maximum dynamic pressure. The second stage, however, powered by a single vacuum-optimized Rutherford engine, well, it lost thrust after propelling the vehicle to about 8,500 miles an hour. It's about half the value necessary to attain orbit. Now, the vehicle disintegrated on re-entry, but telemetry was extensive, with the company reporting thousands of data channels to review post-flight and Rocket Lab is working with the FAA on the investigation. For now, all future launches are suspended. The payload of the flight, well, there's a remote sensing satellite package centered on Canon's CESAT-1B, an experimental platform with both high-resolution and wide-angle cameras with 35-inch resolution from orbit. The test was intended to validate the design for mass production. Now, also aboard were five SuperDove CubeSats built by regular Rocket Lab customer Planet Labs. These are also imaging satellites intended for agriculture, natural resource management, and infrastructure monitoring. The other payload was in space as Faraday 1, a common platform that the company uses to carry experiments for companies that don't need the cost and complexity of a custom bus. While disappointing, failure is not unexpected. Orbital spaceflight is far from routine, and even high-reliability boosters such as ULA's Atlas and Delta and the SpaceX Falcon series, well, they achieved reliability through a series of spectacular failures. Rocket Lab uses 3D-printed engines, battery-powered fuel pumps, and a structure made of carbon composites, all leading-edge technologies in a historically conservative industry. Will Rocket Lab be back? Well, the answer is yes, and the company remains optimistic, and so do their customers. We'll be looking at the next Rocket Lab launch with great interest. Boeing is much in the news these days, most of it bad. But the Chicago-based aerospace titan, well, they're working on more than just fighter planes and airliners. The company has tested their first flying autonomous passenger vehicle, an electrically powered two-seat drone with multiple lift fans, wings, and a five-bladed pusher prop for forward motion. The vehicle is called Aurora, and it's what Boeing calls a passenger air vehicle, or PAV, which Boeing hopes will be ferrying passengers in urban areas soon. The development of the vehicle is rapid, going from a concept to a flying prototype in one year. The test flight completed a controlled takeoff, hover, and landing with translational capabilities with their coming next. The transition from vertical thrust to wing-generated lift from forward motion, well, it's always the tricky part of V2L technologies like this, especially without the thrust vectoring possible with tilt wings or tilt rotors like the V22 Osprey. Electropropulsion is helpful here because vertical thrust can be relatively easily controlled with precision as forward acceleration generates lift over the wings, taking over from the rotor blades. Now, Boeing hopes that the prototype will lead to green, quiet air taxis for urban use, and they have a division dedicated to air mobility called Next. 
another Boeing subsidiary, Aurora Flight Sciences, where they designed and built the test vehicle. The urban air mobility space is becoming increasingly crowded, and the key appears to be electric propulsion. Now, the Skycar concept has been around for decades, notably in the hands of inventor Paul Mahler, but vertical lift without large rotor blades, well, that's been a technical challenge since the 1950s, when companies like Hiller and Bell experimented with flying platforms and rocket belts. Now, there are competing schools of thought about this challenge. Ducted fans, tilt rotors, tilt wings, and conventional rotor blades powered by electric motors are all possibilities. Will multiple motors and fans, as seen in current civilian drone technology, well, is that scalable? 60 years after the Jetsons, we'll know soon. Wind power has been around for centuries, and its modern form for electrical generation, well, it currently generates about 5% of the world's electricity. That's just over half a terawatt. Tom Lombardo has a story this week about the challenges and opportunities of ramping wind power as a serious competitor to legacy power generation systems on a global scale. Now, according to Tom, it's a problem for both science and engineering. Weather prediction and our understanding of atmospheric physics, well, they both need to improve, as well as the design of the turbines themselves. Right now, utility-scale units, well, they can be tall up to 200 meters above the surface, and after decades of optimization of lightweight materials and blade aerodynamics, the rate of efficiency improvement, well, it's slowing. Now, that's inevitable as designs reach the theoretical performance limits for these large, slow-moving airfoils and the rotating electrics that generate the power. Now, this has created a scaling problem. Larger, more powerful units deliver lower-cost electricity, but simply scaling a wind turbine designed 30 years ago to match current output demand, well, that would result in a unit 10 times heavier than the current state-of-the-art. And then even if we can get the airfoils well above 300 meters to get higher efficiency, they'll exist outside the surface layer of the atmosphere into a region that's not well understood. While there are good models for airflow around tall buildings, wind turbines are dynamic systems, and very large units may have blades that encounter different wind conditions at different altitudes. The threat to migratory birds and bats also may be a factor, as is the downwind effect of very large turbines. Then further down the wire, the grid itself has to be smart enough to control the highly variable output between individual turbines, as well as entire wind farms and other generation devices also on the grid, including thermal generation and photovoltaics. The IIoT will play a role here with instrumentation in each turbine to help develop control algorithms that will compensate for this high output variability and to manage the potentially damaging physical loads on the turbine structures themselves. More durable, lightweight, advanced materials will be needed for these very large structures, with damage tolerance being a critical issue for composite blades. Offshore wind farms may be appealing for several reasons. They can be located in regions with steady wind, away from bird migration, and they're less likely to generate blowback from a local population that finds them unsightly. But in deeper water, they'll need to be floating structures, which adds another level of engineering cost and complexity. And of course, integrating all this in a way that generates reliable baseload that matches or exceeds the performance of thermal generation and photovoltaics with storage as well, well, that'll be crucial. The Colorado-based National Renewable Energy Laboratory will are developing models that suggest that wind generation penetration could exceed 35%, with the possibility of 90% in a well-managed grid system. Will it all work? Well, the technologies are there, but as battery costs fall, solar plus storage looks tough to beat. We'll report back as the news develops. Thanks for joining me, and we'll see you next time on This Week in Engineering.